if you have your spouse in your mind and your heart, that doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, screw the present. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. Grief has this way of forcing us into a world we didn't choose, and a world from which we have no escape. It's like being washed out to sea. There on the shore are all the pieces and players of your old life watching from dry land. Maybe the waves of your loss will lap at their ankles. Maybe they'll swim out to try to see you or save you, but there's a part of this sea that is yours and yours alone. The universal experience is also as unique as every person who experiences it. And if I've learned anything from my own ocean and from dipping my toes into the experiences of others, it is that our grief needs a witness. Inside every loss is a story that longs to be told. Inside every griever is a nearly uncontrollable urge to make the people around us understand what we had and what we have now. In 2020, David's wife, Marion, was diagnosed with glioblastoma. It's a word I only know because I had to look it up when my husband, Aaron, was diagnosed in 2014. And it's a word that is just shorthand for a horrible, aggressive, incurable brain cancer. David and Marion had been together for 39 years when Marion died two months after her diagnosis. And nearly a year after Marion's death, David wrote me this email. I was just referred to your 2018 TED Talk on moving on. Our situations are similar, but not exactly 100%. And I'm 72. My wife was the older woman by five weeks. It was kind of an annual joke with us that all our our birthdays followed each other. Marion also died of a glioblastoma, although she only lived a bit more than two months. She had suffered a stroke in between her two surgeries. And in one of these ironic moments of life, one person suggested to me that Marion was lucky in going fast. And I thought to myself, I don't know how to respond to this. I'm lucky? I get what you mean by moving on and going forward. Right now, I am two months away from the first anniversary of Marin's passing, and I've analogized my life since then to a sine wave in electronics, up and down, up and down, etc. At the beginning, I was too devastated to think about much. Marin and I were together for about 39 years. I often said if it wasn't for meeting her, I wouldn't have ever been married, and I would have become some sort of curmudgeonly bachelor. So like other widowed people, I first recognized that I have to manage the void that is always with me. I remember driving one day up to the North Shore and looking at the empty passenger seat beside me and realizing that fact. I actually was satisfied to come to that realization. So I know what you mean in relation to moving forward. For me, that just means that I'm managing to live my daily life, nothing more. No, that does not mean a break from Marion or our life together. I always repeat the mantra that she will always be in my heart and mind, but will also have to coexist in my present and future. That's all. 
That's all. Just that big, huge task to live your present and your future while holding your past. David's email wasn't asking me for a conversation or asking me to interview him. He was just reaching out. He was looking for a witness to where he was and what he was holding. He had an experience similar to mine and so, so different. So this episode, we're asking you to be a witness to a story that is fully unique and painfully universal. Two people fall in love. Two people build a life together. One person dies, and the other has to live without them. This is David and Marion's love story. We met, we were in her early 30s. She happened to come into a synagogue that I was started attending, and I just noticed her from a distance. The second time we actually did meet, we were attending a speaker or a meeting. She made it kind of obvious she wanted to meet me, <laughs> took the seat next to me and started mentioning a few things. And then after that, I said, you want to go out for a drink? I said, yeah. And we get to talk more. It turned out that both our fathers were butchers. <laughs> well, hers was a bit different than mine, but, you know, we had some in common and, um, yeah, I told her, I said, I'd give her a call tomorrow night. And she figured that, you know, most guys say things like that and they never do call you again. But I did. I never really had much experience in terms of having long-term girlfriends. I, I didn't. In fact, my family had given up on me. You know, the thing was, they said, David's not programmed to be married. <laughs> well, anyways, my other siblings were married during what my wife and I used to refer to as normal age, uh, you know, in the 20s. But no, I, I, and through my teen years, I was very shy. And I didn't get over that until I was in my 20s, you know, recognize the other gender, you know. Um, so that's, you know, it, it took a long time for me to find someone. But David did find someone. And by the third date, for David at least, it was a done deal. Altogether, we were together for almost 40 years. That's quite a long time. We would always go out. You know, I mean, you know, we always whether it's movies, go out to eat. They always like to do that. We, um, we weren't people who just stayed at home all the time. And we do things on our own, I mean, apart from each other, too. So we were cool. Like, she had an avocation of arts and craft. You know, she was always going to craft shows. And she also had an attitude towards fashion as art. She was someone that, you know, didn't think that uh, it was not highbrow or something to be interested in fashion. I mean, she considered it a part of art. And once in a while, I would actually sometimes go to a craft show with her. We had a way of, uh, <laughs> we had a strategy. I would take a couple of turns around the, the uh, exhibitions with her 
And then I would have a book with me. And we'd have our phones and say, goodbye. You know, that, that was it. You know, she could, because she could spend forever. And I go off and read my book. And, you know, afterwards, you know, when she had satisfied, satiated her, you know, interest or bought it, some things, you know, and then got together and, you know, left the show. So there were things that we, a lot of things we did together and a lot of things we did on our own. She had no interest in sports, but she tolerated my interest in sports. You know, she always knew that I was a big hockey fan. And um, sometimes she'd even sit in the same room with me if I was watching a game, but I'd have to sound off. That was a compromise I made with her. And, you know, I didn't care because I got tired of listening to the announcers and their BS and everything. I know what was going on. No one had to tell me, tell me, you know, so I just watch it, you know. It really was what we want to think of as a marriage of two people. You know, people might have thought we were opposites, but in reality, you know, we we weren't so opposite when it came down to life itself. How else were you and Marion different? Uh, she talked a lot more than I did. <laughs> Even though we didn't share identical politics, she was always open to discussing everything. You know, like she was a big Facebooker. And she would get involved with people who were Trump supporters and have civilized discussions with them. I can't, okay? But, you know, she could. And I always say to people, we ought to take a page out of her book and maybe society would be a lot better off for it. And more often than not, we saw eye to eye on the real issues of life. I don't mean the politics and, you know, but getting along together, raising a family, you know, our outlook on morals and our same outlook on, you know, or even God, what if I bring that up? But she, she was genuine, you know. I used to call her an idealist. I have a thing about idealist. Um, <laughs> you know, she was idealistic in some ways, which I wasn't. Um, <clears throat> I've had experiences in my life that, you know, turn me off, particularly in, in people in groups. Sometimes I would be, have more of a hard-bitten view of people, you know, that, um, and she would have a more hopeful view, you know. She was an idealist, but she didn't let her idealism, idealism carry her away. David and Marion have a longish, happy life together. There are craft shows and family gatherings and hockey games on TV. The two of them find their groove and they work through the same things all couples work through and they grow together, they grow up together. And then one day, 39 years after that first date, they're sitting on the couch. We were watching one of our British mysteries. I noticed in her eyes, trying to for a minute, they seemed opaque. And then it went away. David notices that something's wrong, but it happens so quickly, he just kind of moves on and forgets about it. 
And then a month later, Marion starts to complain that her tooth hurts, so she makes an appointment with their dentist and gets in the car to head out. And what happened was, instead of going to the dentist, she took a right turn towards the town where she did a lot of her work. And she got in an accident, which totaled our car. And um, the EMT said she looked a little wobbly. They're going to take her up to a local hospital. The doctors look her over and decide that Marion's okay. No broken bones, nothing evidently majorly wrong. So they discharge her after about an hour, and Marion and David head home together. And for a few days afterwards, Marion is complaining about muscle soreness. She was an accident, so I didn't think it was strange that she complained about muscle soreness or anything like that. But then the next couple of days, she was complaining about being so tired that she was having trouble getting out of bed. And this accident happened on Tuesday. And by that Saturday, she said to me, I don't feel good. We better go to the hospital. And, um, you know, I took her to the ER. And um, that's what I decided to do a CT scan and MRI on her. And then they found the tumor. There was fluid that developed around the tumor. And uh, we tried <clears throat> to counter a dexamethasone, which is a cousin of prednisone, but uh, it didn't work. So the surgeon um, asked her, we bring her back to the hospital and put a drain in her thing. And she uh, basically was suffering a stroke. And if you've ever been around people who are suffering a stroke, their personalities change completely. I mean, she was angry. She started yelling at me. Um, and she was also losing her balance. And um, I had a friend of mine, and that Friday morning, we practically had to take her hostage to bring her back to the hospital. I'll tell you, from the second week of having the glioblastoma, I knew what I was up against, so I went and did what I called the death stuff. What's the death stuff? I got a double plot in the cemetery. <laughs> I set up the funeral because I knew, you know, sooner or later, it's going to die. The prescribed length of life for people with glioblastoma is supposedly 12 to 14 months. Um, but I think you know, the fact that she also had suffered a stroke uh, sort of cut that back. She spent basically the next two months in the hospital. The treatment for glioblastoma has not changed much in the past decades. It is brutal, truly, and it's also the only options that you have. It's surgery, it's chemo, and it's radiation. You know, I, I sometimes get mad at myself, but a lot of people say they couldn't blame me. I insisted they try radiation with her. And when I look back upon this, and she was really terrified. When you do the MRI of your skull, you know, you get an enclosure, you're mostly enclosed. So I can relate to that. And she had to hold the nurse's hand. She was that scared. And I realized that, you know, I knew what was coming. I should have found just a good hospice and let's you know, but I, I didn't, so. We'll be right back.
we're back. It has never been easy to lose the person you love to brain cancer or any other way, but Marion is dying in 2020. Originally, they had called me from the rehab center and said, how would you like to come down and meet with Marion downstairs? You keep mask on. I said, sure, you bet. But when I got there, she wasn't out front, and they told me we're going to have to put uh, what do they call PPE, the personal protective uh, gear on you, you know, those, you know, uh, gown and mask and, you know, everything. And we went up to her room and I could see she was having a seizure. She looked, uh, it was terrible. And that's, you know, when I called my daughter to tell her to come up here. Basically, she lasted up until about 1.45 a.m. When she was in the hospital, I was living here myself and the dog, you know. <laughs> the dog was actually her dog, even though I took care of her, good care of her. Um, <laughs> I'm left with a dog and not Marion. I love the dog, but, you know, it's not Marion. <laughs> in my life, you know, before I was married, you know, I had experience of both here and elsewhere of living on my own. It's, it's nothing I don't promulgate as a lifestyle, but I can deal with it, you know? I'll tell you one thing that, that stands on my mind about during that time when she was in the hospital and still alive. I really look forward to the evenings because I didn't have to talk to any doctors or nurses anymore for the day. And I really, that was, you know, I at least could rest my mind for the evening until the next day when you start all over again. A lot of people complain about their days being so long. I've had the opposite. <laughs> I feel like the time was like, especially in the first year, time was moving faster. You know, it's like, I, was, I didn't want to go to bed. <laughs> but um, I don't know, this is my experience. A lot of people say the second year is worse and I have to agree with that. I think I was so busy in the first year of clearing up of financial stuff and the taxes and all that stuff. And now all of a sudden it just felt like a, more of an impact in the second year. And now we're coming to the close of the second year. And as I said, it's kind of hanging over me for now. Somebody told me though, that, you know, Marion only lived a little more than two months. She didn't get the prescribed 12 to 14 months of life that she's supposed to get with a GBM. And he said to me, well, you're lucky she didn't have to live long. And I didn't know how to respond to that. I mean, yeah, in one sense, maybe sure, but lucky? What do you mean lucky? I lost my wife. <laughs> lucky, you know. And then there's dating. I think I made a mistake with dating. I was, as I say, too early. And I pulled back because, you know, it just experiences show me that. 
although I can safely say that dating is still dating and the act of dating itself. What I found was this getting beyond the date, you know, and having how to navigate this was really kind of kind of strange to me. I'll tell you about part of the reason that I did start dating back then was that I wanted to reach out and meet people, just meet people, because not only my wife, but a lot of our friends passed away. So, you know, we're kind of down to the part in life I realized that where, you know, I saw my parents' friends die and they were like missing them. And that's the way I do too. But, you know, it's, it's to meeting the people and, you know, getting to make friends. But it's uh, it can be for a pretty complicated process. It's not like we were in the 20s and 30s. It really isn't, you know. You don't want to get married again. But somehow, some women say that they want to find the last love. And I just find this baffling. <laughs> love is not something that you go to a delicatessen and get a quarter pound of love, you know. It's... Uh, really isn't. And marriage is not, you know, in the cards, as I said, I was married. But, you know, to find someone that you could be uh, a companion or special friend, you know, maybe I'll still have someone I, I can find. Moving forward, it doesn't mean you have to find a new person. It doesn't mean you need to remarry or find a companion or a special friend. I would like it if we could all go to the deli and order a quarter pound of love. But instead, we just have the task of living our lives without the person we had shared our life with. We always talk about the void. And in fact, I realized early on, we like to go to a certain beach in the summer. So after she passed away, I started making a routine sort of on Saturdays, just to drive up there, even if it was off season. Matter of fact, I kind of prefer beaches off season. One time I was driving, you know, I looked toward the passenger seat and I realized Marin's not there. But I also had an experience in my house where at that time I was still belonging to a bereavement group. And I told the people, I said, you know, I went from one end of the house to the other and the, the void seemed almost measurable as if I could have taken a tape measure out and measured it. You know, I wouldn't open her closet door for a long time. And then finally I said to myself, oh, hell with it. I opened the door and I said, ha, you don't scare me. And I closed the door. And now I started using the closet. Now, I don't, I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that. Um, and I don't know what, what there is beyond or there's above us. Or I wish I could ask Marion, but I can't. One thing I, I tell to... Uh, not just younger people, but you know, everybody that's around and, and they're married or there was someone, don't ever take it anyone for granted, really. Because you never know 
life, how life works out. Life is uh, it's complicated, you know. When you become widowed, it's kind of like now I, I've told a few friends that she's now I feel like I'm really up against life. Before life was kind of this big thing around us, but now it's like I'm up against the wall. That's the way I feel about it, you know. Life can be very trying at times. I never thought that I would uh, be without Marion because we were planning on, you know, our retirement together and taking a couple more trips. But, uh, well, you know, I'll do a couple trips on my own and <clears throat> maybe my daughter, my granddaughter on trip and, you know, that's we'll do what we do. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McNerney. And I want to thank David for sharing Marion with us and for reaching out. And also, I don't know, there are a million Davids. There are a million Marions. And also there's only one. And sometimes I just like to listen to stories like this one to remind me of that, to remind me that every person that you meet is carrying their own story, their own version of, of this. So thank you, David, for sharing that with us. Our team here at Terrible Thanks for Asking is Marcel Malikibu, our senior producer, Jordan Turgeon, Megan Palmer, Claire McInerney, Larissa Witcher, and Eugene Kidd. We are a production of Feelings & Co., known as F & Co. The F could also stand for flowers. That's not as funny. Honestly, it's not as easy. I am not recording this in my closet. I'm not recording this in my home. I'm recording this at Malikibu Studios in Minneapolis. <laughs> In the background, you might hear a rowdy two-year-old who has taken a snooze and is ready to frickin' party, okay? What does she want to tell you about? Her Moana t-shirt, <laughs> okay? She's wearing a Moana t-shirt. She's gonna tell you that. She wants to tell you that. Um, um, you can find our show at ttfa.org. If you rate and review and share our podcast with someone that you think would love it, that is very helpful. And if you'd like to support us in a financial way, certainly no pressure, uh, you could go to ttfa.org premium. We offer ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and more. And that and more is quarterly mail. And I love sending mail and I try to make sure I send you something good, something worthwhile, something wonderful every quarter. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. Uh, as always, you should look him up. He has a new band called Lamar that is really lovely that you should be also looking into. If you want to email us, it's terrible at feelingsand.co. And our phone number is 612-568-4441. You can add to a story. You can comment on a story. You can ask us questions, whatever you'd like. I'm not going to tell you how to leave a voicemail. That's your business. 612-568-4441. 
thank you for being here.